You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the season three finale, covering Michael Mann's Heat and its Pulp Fiction companion piece, Heat 2. Featuring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Los Angeles, Bank Robberies, Highline Thieves, Aryan Brotherhood, John Voight, Desert Phone Calls, Lost Loves, Longing Glances, Great Asses, South American Cities, Mexican Mothers, Machine Gun Battles, Freeway Chases, Iridescent Algae, and Henry Rollins. Martin. Yes. You know, you can ball my wife if she wants you to. You can lounge around here on her sofa in her husband's dead tech postmodernistic bullshit house if you want to. But you do not get to watch my fucking television set! Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to go back to Los Angeles? Always, man. We're finally doing it. I know, right? Like, it's it's weird, like, approaching this movie, which is 1995's Heat, where, in our opinion, probably the most formative movie of our life, like, maybe the one we've watched the most. I know, like... It's this and Halloween. I Honestly, think, yeah. for me, like well, that's, it, that's it. Yeah, me too, probably, is that. And Jaws. Jaws yeah. would be the other and one. And then, honestly, Batman for Burton for me. But that's just like, those are personal sure. shit, but yeah. But it's like, I feel like, I was at the bar today, okay? And we were talking, and one of the other bartenders found out that uh, I write film criticism and podcasts and stuff. And she instantly went to the question of like, oh, what's your like top three movie? You know, the the... Question that everybody who loves movies and like some stranger finds out that you love like love movies like you hate to get because yeah. you're like I don't fucking know man like I gotta narrow it down to three but it's like and I don't want to sound pretentious and all that kind of shit too yeah but she actually like after that one she took the approach because she could see me like struggling she was like okay let's start let's start here what's the first action movie you watch? Like, what's the one you remember as like your first action movie? What was your like first favorite movie? And that was Jaws for me. It was like my mm. first favorite movie. But if she had gotten down the line, cause she went to like horror movie, science fiction, like just kind of jumped all around. And it was like a good way to like jog my own brain of being like, huh, what was the first one that I truly like? Cause like art film, she was like, what was the first like artsy movie you really like got you into that? And I was like, 
Blue Velvet. Like I, it, mm. But it took me a second to be like, what was it? And I was like, it has to be Blue Velvet. Like That's the first one I remember being like, holy shit, movies can do this? Like You can just totally experiment and do something off the beaten path that feels like this and looks like nothing else. But Heat, if she had gotten to like, what do you think is the first movie where you watched it and you were like, this is what, what classic movies are supposed to feel like. And like in your modern age, not something that your dad showed you or not something that like school taught, like the Godfather or Lawrence yeah. of Arabia or something like somebody else showed you like the one that you watched and you were like, oh shit, this is like the classic of my lifetime. Heat would be it. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about it a lot today. I rewatched the movie last night um, for like we were saying, like the however many time, I don't know. Um it's hard to, as you said, approach this because it's so momentous, not just as a film in its own right, but also personally for both of us. And it is, I don't even make, it's not even a secret handshake. It's such a great film that everyone should watch. But Michael Mann has been a connection between you and I from beginning of our friendship. Sure. Um, and the way I would put it is even rewatching it, I said, I wish every movie were like this. There's the, the way it makes me feel. Um, man is one of those filmmakers and I, I think heat and manhunter particularly for me where a, an exciting, just like bullet from a gun, amazing narrative, but every way he looks at the world, like the way he looks at romance, the way he looks at action, the way he looks at male friendship and like, and, and work and how we define ourselves by our jobs is everything I want. And part of it is, it's kind of like a little chicken or the egg because I think, I saw this when it was a summer of 96. I didn't see it in theaters. My brother was staying at home at our parents' cabin. I was there. I remember I was in the lake and he, he had already seen heat in the theater. And he goes, I'm going to try to rent heat for us tonight. It was the double VHS from, I was going to ask, is it the double tape? Yes. And he had to get it from this, the grocery store I actually ended up working at when I was in eighth grade. And I remember I was in the water. He goes, Martin, he yelled down from the cabin or from the cabin. He goes, I got heat. And I like I put my arms in the air and I fell back because he'd been talking it up for like six months. And even at that age, we sat down and this is definitely a, a, a handshake film between my brother and me. I mean, like he showed it to me. Um, we talk heat all the time. I got him that you know great ass T shirt when I got myself one, and so it's definitely personally there for me. But it's just like this movie is it, it again. It's so hard to approach because it is so perfect in a lot of ways. And I've thought about it so much that I'm almost at a loss for words. You know what I mean? I think it's also one of the movies that taught me about autorism. Like as I went along, like when I first watched it, I was so blown away by it. That I was like, Oh my God, Michael Mann, like I have to watch everything that this guy's ever done and would seek out. Cause my dad loved thief too. Like he was huge into that and he loved Miami vice so, like, I started, like, tracking down, like, VHS tapes and, like, taping stuff, like, episodes of Miami Vice off of TV. And then went back. My dad rented me, like, Thief. My dad also, weirdly enough, like, really liked the Jericho Mile. Mm. Like, he had remembered it from its original TV broadcast. He was like, he made this prison sports movie about this runner. He was like, it's really good. He's like, you know, most TV movies, not so good. They're kind of boring or, like, whatever. He goes, but this one, it actually feels like a real movie. And then when I actually did finally get around to seeing Jericho Mile, I was like, oh, my God, this really is kind of unlike anything even from that era. Like, you can see all of the pieces of Michael Mann, like, falling into place and kind of in place like from that very first like TV film. But like it was the one that taught me that like 
sometimes a work can be like a culmination of everything that came before it. And then as his work went along and I got older with it, the work that maybe he would continue to chase for the rest of his career, at least that kind of high. Now, in Michael Mann's case, I think he obviously zags a lot mm-hmm. away from Heat, is that he makes stuff like Ali, Public Enemies, the Insider. Um, the insider. Yeah. yeah, 100% is a zag. Uh, and it's like, so you can see him stray away, but like he always comes back. Like Miami Vice to me is like the most Michael Mann. It's the it's all of his fascinations. Yes. Like folded in on themselves to where you just almost to like abstraction to a certain degree. Um, but Heat was the one where I was like, oh shit, this is all of this guy's fascinations. Like he was like getting to this point. Like he wanted to do it. And then when you actually do all the research about Heat and like go and do like watch LA takedown, which was like the original like TV movie dry run read about how like he had been writing this movie since like what the 70s, 79, I think. Yeah. Walter Hill was supposed to make it at one point, which, Oh my God, what like talk about a sliding doors moment of like, what does Walter Hill's heat look like? Also amazing. Maybe with a manuscript. I mean, it could have been not as like, I think Hill takes it and he cuts it to a hundred minutes. And a lot more action. A lot more. Well, I think he or, like, almost strips scenes. it down. Like it's almost like the better version of L.A. Takedown in my head. Yeah, you know, to where L.A. Takedown feels. Was, I have a really that was, com- a TV, that was going to be the show though, right? Originally, it was going to be like the pilot. No, I think it's just a TV movie. Is that because I, I thought I thought I read somewhere originally when they first pitched it, it was going to be beginning possibly. Well, because it came after he, he does Miami Vice, obviously with Anthony uh, Yurkovich. And then, crime and then he story. does Crime Story with the real life uh, basis mm-hmm. for um, Vincent Hanna. Chuck, uh, his like best friend. Yeah. Chuck Adamson? Yeah. 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 And then LA Takedown is like the movie. It feels like the TV movie to where like. It's almost like the compromise, like, I'm going to finally get to make Heat, but I have to make it for TV. And he, I think I've even read in, like, interviews, has kind of referred to it in an offhanded way as, like, being kind of like a dry run. Like, I'd been trying to make this movie for so long. It was like, okay, I finally have this opportunity, so I might as well, like, work the kinks out. And then you finally get to 1995, and he makes the epic, the masterpiece, Heat, with Warner Brothers at three hours with two of, like the Titanic icons of cinema of all time. Like it's just, you, you saw him building towards it and building towards it and building towards it. And then when you actually got it, it was that fucking good. Well, it's a, there's a theme in man is becoming like, it's a theme that runs throughout up to the book. Heat too, which we'll discuss, you know, it's a big part of Manhunter. you know, this idea of people turning in or, or kind of morphing into, their perfect self or their, their, their most self. And I feel like that's something he definitely does in his own life. And it definitely ran two heats, but it's cool. Like you said though, is like he didn't just stick in that gear for the rest of his career because like heat is a monumental film. I mean, like it is, even though it wasn't really quite as much at the time, it is, but since then has been, cons- it's just considered an absolute masterpiece with, you know, good reason. But he, you know, like I said, he kind of move away from it and kind of come back to it, but was always had new interests. That's why I, I like Man too. is 
I don't think he has any interest in in you know repeating the successes of his past. And even though he did Heat Two, it it doesn't feel like a cash grab. It doesn't feel. I, I had a friend who said, um, I said, man, this this feels like fan, almost like kind of fan service or scenes in the in the book that felt like fan service. He goes, I don't think he gives a shit about that. He likes what he likes, and we're on his wavelength. And I completely agree. That's exactly it. Yeah. Is that. And it's not even like he likes what he likes. It's just that he's like obsessed with certain things like men with codes, men who are incredibly like uh, proficient at their jobs, um, longing, lost loves, elemental romance, elemental romance, um, the nuts and bolts of like not just uh, heists themselves, but he likes the nuts and bolts of like planning them like he wants you to see like the schematics of of how these highline thieves with neil mccauley and um you know tom sizemore's character trejo which i always liked that danny trejo. trejo they just called danny trejo but his whole crew trish Trisha hairless who becomes the uh, protagonist pretty much of like heat too like he wants you to see not just the nuts and bolts of like how they lay out scores how they work together how they implement these plans but also like how each of these pieces in this unit like work together as like cogs in a well-oiled machine to pull those off like the book heat two almost outlines that even better than the movie to a degree that like I started to get tired with it in like the middle section with like the, the Mexican like cartel hotel heist, which we'll get to in a second. Um, But like once it's actually in action, like even on the page, it's like breathless. He also, I mean, again, we'll get to the book more, but he has this visual style and, and the Mark Maron interview, which I really didn't like too much. Um, Did you listen to it? I did. Yeah. I think it's, I think he's really candid and insightful and fun, but you can also like hear him getting agitated with Marin from time to time. But I mean, at the same thing, at time is like Marin is his own worst enemy. Like yes. I like his show, but like he almost can't get out of his own way half the time. And like, you're like, I don't, I want to listen to Barocko fucking Bama talk. I don't want to like listen to Mark Maron wind up for two minutes and then be like, Barack, what do you think about that? And it's like, just let him speak, man. Yeah, you think about the interviewer Sean from like Hot Ones. Like he's a great interviewer. Yeah, because he, like, he just just says it and great, then gets the fuck out of the way. Great questions that surprise the person he hangs back. But like Maron, the interview was like, it was very. He's a guy who gets very over. It. He gets excited. And he's like, oh, because it's like about this. And man, you know, man is this like Chicago raised gruff kind of guy who's like, Marin would say, yeah, because it's about this. And man's like, no, you know, <laughs> and it, it, it was just hilarious. Nah. You know, it's just really <laughs> hilarious to listen to. But at the same time, man can stumble himself because taking it back to like L.A. Takedown, L.A. Takedown, I've always had like a glib way of describing it to people is that it feels like the Max Fisher Playhouse version of Heat <laughs> is that you're watching like the goofy like mm, like you have an approximation of what Heat is, but like you have three dollars and like this cutout soundstage to shoot it on. But I think that's part of the fun is because in 
even Michael Mann's filmography, you can see the same thing that he's fascinated with with his characters is that watching him put it together, watching him work his way to heat and even be like, hmm, well, this one's a failure. And like he's admitted like this, like L.A. Takedown doesn't work, you know, and like there's a reason that it's hard to find anymore. Like I basically have a VHS tape of it and you can find some like bootleg DVDs out there and some other like I think outside regions outside of the United States. And you had the you had the VHS at uh, Vulcan. Right. I remember, yeah. actually, I got I rented it from there. Yeah, it looked like shit, but you know what? It was the only way you could see it for the longest time. But let's jump into Heat 2, because that's the other reason we wanted to do this, is that Michael Mann came out and was like, I'm going to write my first book. <laughs> and in true Michael Mann fashion, was like, my first book is Heat 2. It's like, he didn't even bother to come up with a better title. It's like, hilarious. He was just like, Heat 2. Go. Oh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you. You know you'll read it. And it is. It's a number one New York Times bestseller. Um, what did you think about Heat 2, like on its fir- your first go around? Because you devoured it quicker than I did. So I had it come to my house, ordered off Amazon. It got here, I think, actually a day early. I read it in less than two days. And I'm not a fast reader. And this book's like, what, 500 pages long? Just under. It's like 467 or something. And I, like you said, I plowed through this. And from the, fir- from the first page, I was like, oh, baby, I'm in. You know, and he's, you know, he wrote it with Meg Gardner, um, who's actually a local. She's an Austin writer. I know. Um, and I think she definitely helped shape because he's not a novelist. And, like, there, there are moments where from a writing perspective, like you were saying, like getting way into the detail, the pacing kind of like has trouble. Also, I think the cross cutting between times does him no favors. Yeah. The chronology stuff is weird because it's like, and I feel like while we work through our thoughts on heat two itself, like we can actually talk about heat. Like that's the cool thing about it is because it operates as a prequel, a sequel and almost like, Christian hairless fan fiction to where like he becomes like the, the main protagonist while we also learn like all the stuff about Macaulay and about Vincent Hanna. Like we find out where Vincent Hanna ends up and also like the book picks up right after the end of the downtown LA shootout. Yeah. I mean the way I think I heard someone describe it, I'm just going to, you know, it's, it's Godfather part two as well. Right. You know, so you have the, the it's the, close. The, yeah. Yeah. It's similar. And the, the cross cutting, you know, thematically in Godfather two works better. I think than some of the cross cut the, the, much better, the literary cross cutting here, but you know, you bring up Chris and I think that's one of the things I really like about the book is if anything, I'd probably, if I could, change it would just be due to Chris story because Chris is a blank slate from the movie. Um, Val Kilmer is so he's so cold and, and purposely so right. And, Mm -hmm. and he, he's one of my favorite parts of the movie, but he's like the rest of this group, like very kind of focused on the work. He has this, you know, elemental love with, with Charlene. They got a great side plot, but we don't know much about him besides he's a gambling junkie. And so the book has a lot of room to fill in versus you and you have the characters of Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley. It's like those characters are obviously so much more important to the narrative of the film. And and you have Pacino and you have, you know, uh, De Niro in your head. You're, you're comparing it all the time. And I think he lands the Hanna stuff 
the Macaulay stuff's probably the weakest in terms of young Macaulay. That's the stuff that didn't work for me as well in the book. It's weird. It's like the young Macaulay stuff is is the stuff that didn't 100% line up with who we knew Macaulay to be in 1995 in Heat. Yeah. And he's dead for like most of the book until we jump back to 1988. Now, the thing about young Macaulay is that there's part there's times where you see like the glimmers of him and like where where you're like okay, this is it. And I guess you could also make the argument is that it's like this is before the Macaulay that we knew and for good reason like there's a tragedy that befalls his life to where it's like, maybe that helps mold uh, like who we know in 1995, like this guy that we, we pick up with who is like, you know, don't have any attachments in your life. If you aren't willing to drop, if you spot the 30 seconds flat, if you spot the heat around the corner, you know, like that guy didn't maybe exist in 1988. Like he was getting there, but like it took this one tragedy to actually get him into that mode. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what it's doing it, but it kind of reminded me of like young Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> where is that very similar idea of like, why is Sherlock Holmes this kind of like, you know, doesn't have a woman in his life that he's, he's very closed off. Um, it's because of this tragedy, you know, and, and what I don't like about that is that feels probably one of the most hackneyed, like kind of, um, cheap, like paperback kind of narrative devices in the book, because it's also kind of like the reason I don't like Prometheus. The movie is like, I like to imagine, it's kind of a weird comparison, but I like to imagine that the aliens are eternal, right? That they have been around for millions of years. They're older than time itself. With Macaulay, I had this idea, this guy has been, since Folsom when he was like 20, has been this guy, that he honed that. I don't like that only took him like, that seven years ago, he was this more talkative, more like almost like loving. He's, well, he's, he's not more talkative because even his lover's daughter, Gabriella, when she describes him, says like he was a man of very few words, but when he talked, like you listened. So like they, I think he's still there. Like he, at least you can feel man trying to make him the guy that he was while also like adding like maybe some youthful naivete and like inexperience. Yeah. That it doesn't quite, I agree with you. It doesn't quite work, but I'm trying to like suss out like what does work about the character and what doesn't we're like Hannah, because I, I think the one thing I will say is that the books interpretation of Hannah or like it's reintroduction, like is it has an advantage over the young Macaulay stuff because there's no young Hannah stuff. Well, there is a little bit of the Chicago young Hannah yeah, stuff. with but the Wardell like, stuff, yeah. But even the young Hannah stuff, like, he talks like fucking Vincent Hannah. The he one talks like the, Pacino. Yeah, like, yeah. He, he, like, you can hear, like, man writing the dialogue, like, his fingers clacking against the keys, and he's, like, writing to the rhythm of P- Pacino's voice because there's all the weird insults the ex- like you can hear the explosions like the 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 odd like almost like pixies esque like loud quiet loud like cadence like yep. it's all in the dialogue where like he struggled a little bit to bring the old Neil back into like the younger form and I think you get so much more like you get a little bit of young uh, Vincent Hanna but it's mostly like Vincent Hanna in 1995 or 2000 where the book ends up yeah and you get like 
a whole section of young Macaulay, including this like love of his life and this this surrogate daughter figure that he has with the 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 Mexican smugglers and stuff that help him set up like this kind of cartel raid. And like, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit at a disadvantage, or at least it was a more of a challenge to do that because he had to fill so so many more of those gaps you described earlier. Absolutely. I mean, almost feel like if they want to do young Macaulay is even younger. Like go back to Vietnam. See, I, I, I don't, hate that idea. I, I really do. I don't want to go back that far. Like yeah. I don't need to see. It's like the whole. It's the the wrong kid died like theory. <laughs> or like I don't. I don't need to see that shit. Like just seven years feels just enough to me because it's almost like okay, and especially like the way he approaches it to where it's like because you still get Michael Cerrito, you still get Chris Chahirlis, you still get Trey Ho, you get uh, a couple new members of the crew with like um gabriella's cousin uh, cousin, marcos is like one of the uh like he's like the lookout for that raid and everything so like you see how they work together and it's like at least he's playing with that a little bit and i feel like that's just enough like if we saw neil before like he had those dudes at his side like that felt like a real like getting the band back together kind of vibe on the page i do like that well and what I like about the the quote unquote present day, like ninety six to two thousand, is Neil is like a ghost. Like he hangs over that part of the narrative because he haunts both Chris and he also haunts Hannah. Right? Of like for Hannah, it almost seems like it's never going to get better than that. Like that was almost like his his soulmate in a way too, of like his most perfect equal. And and Chris too, it's 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 missing for him. You know, this kind of he calls him his brother. You know, um, so I like the idea of Neil as kind of like I almost it was easier for me to imagine the spirit of De Niro in the second and like the new in the later years because of how he's affecting. Because I feel like the De Niro of the '95 story is hanging over the rest of that narrative. Does that make sense? It does. There are moments in this book where like I had to put it down because I got like emotionally overwhelmed by segments of it. And one of them is the moment uh, that you're talking about. So like we, we pick up in the book and we're jumping ahead kind of all over the place, frankly, a little bit, but it's like, as the book does, (laughs) we, we pick up. Yeah. With the chronology is that it's like, it's right after the shootout. Then we jump back in time to 1988. And we pick up to where like we're in Chicago, Macaulay and his crew are doing something. They have a run in with Otis Wardell, which is essentially like the 1988 section. Like it's, that narrative's equivalent of like Wayne Grow, hundred percent. Essentially, like he's yeah. the evil, honorless, like honorless, like Ronin that's going to, or even like Chaos Agent that's just yeah, the catalyst of change. Yeah, absolutely. And like, so we have all of that, and then we jump into the future, into two. Well, the future by the books narrative, not for us. It's twenty years in the past still, but it's like uh, we go into two thousand where Krisha Hairless has like he's esconded to South America, uh, Ciudad del Este, which is the same city that you pointed out to me that Miami Vice, like a lot of that movie takes place in. Um, And he starts working for a, uh, let's say, family of Chinese... they're, so they're, what do they're, we call them? They're expats, but they basically have a almost like technology empire they're building. Like they're almost of, like tech terrorists, or they said they're like they're getting into tech. Yeah, terrorism. they're they're supplying like terrorists uh, around the world, and like 
let's say new dictatorships and things like that with like almost like CIA level, like spy hardware. Mm, yep. Like this feels like a totally different novel, but at the same time, it's, it's 100% man just playing the hits is that you get like, you know, him doing my, like the, all the Chris stuff in South America and like where that ends up, especially in the last, like, 20 to 30 pages of the book that's Miami Vice and Black Hat yeah like it's him doing that on the page and unapologetically too oh yeah to where like you could read this book and almost read it as like the journey's greatest hits of Michael Mann you know like you get a little bit of Manhunter at one point yep. you get Thief you get Heat obviously you get some I believe the a lot of the Spectre stuff you're talking about reminds me of the way he treats John Dillinger in Public Enemies yes yes how, very like, much the, the ghost of the 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 forgotten thief or the, like the forgotten man of honor yeah. like kind of hangs over the, the everything. dead gunslinger. Exactly. Yeah. And how like everybody's kind of living in the wake of his legend, you know, and then you jump into the future where you get black hat and Miami vice. So it's really him just like playing it all and not giving a fuck again, as we said earlier, like coming back to all of his fascinations kind of at once, but the whole book culminates in like everybody coming together in the year 2000, like Chris and the, the woman he falls in love with and honestly starts like a splinter cell uh, of like techno business or techno terrorism business to where he's trying to get her uh, Anna Lou um, away from like her family because they kind of devalue her as like, yep. because she the doesn't daughter. fit. Yeah, yeah. She's the daughter in a very traditional uh, Chinese family that wants to pass it on to, to a son and like, who sucks. Yeah. Who totally sucks. Um, that's like, he's like the Fredo of the book. Yep. Um, it's like a Donald Jr. Yeah. He's just like a Donald Jr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he's a loud talker who also doesn't know when he's being used. Also super coked out. Yeah. To bring back to Donald Jr. But, <laughs> but, it all culminates is that they all come back to Los Angeles and it yeah. becomes one big hunt with like this Otis Wardell, the Wayne girl kind of character, Chris, his girl, and then Hannah, like kind of hot on the trail of both. And then also the uh, orphaned like surrogate daughter of Neil yep. comes back into play. Um, but it's like, there's a moment at the end where Hannah's chasing everybody down and he finally tracks down Gabriella, which is Neil's like surrogate Mexican daughter, who's now just living and working and existing as like kind of a, a almost in poverty, but like waitress. Yeah. You know, just making her way and like after becoming like an immigrant to the United States. And she's spotted by Wardell um, because like there's a whole shootout where Wardell ends up even killing her mother and like. That becomes the big, again, the big, like, kind of catalyst for change that sends Neil on this path of, like, being this lone wolf, like, closed know, off, like, closed off professionalism only. But Vincent interviews her, and there's a moment in it where, like, I literally, like, started crying, like, reading it to where, like, she shows him the picture that he, she has in this locket of her, her mother and then him, and she's like, did you know him or like, because he kind of looks at it and you can just feel like the way man writes it. It feels like one of his scenes. You can almost hear like the electronic ambient music, like rising in the background, like some Moby track or something as like Hannah, like stares at this old picture of Neil. And it's like, 
and Neil says something like along the lines of like our cro- our paths cross once. I knew him a little bit, and I was like, oh my god, like this is like the most like he just knows like what we want from him and like what moves us about his work, and it is like that almost like elemental spiritual connection that his characters develop towards one another to where like you said like he becomes they become each other's purpose in life yeah i i totally forgot that moment i because i read it obviously it's been over a month now um and you've read it more recently i i do i, I took the time and i savored it like i read uh, i took it to the beach when i went to go visit my parents for my mom's 70th birthday read about 150 pages by the ocean which was great because i got to go and stare out at the horizon like a proper michael mann protagonist like in between chapters and then brought it home and I would just read it in sections because I really was like, yeah, there's not a bad mo. Even when the pacing starts to lag, it picks right up. And like, it's another great illustration, a lot like the original heat of what a masterful, uh, narrative architect like Michael Mann is like one of the greatest, like he's almost like a straight up engineer the way he gets all these pieces in place. And you're kind of falling along like, how's this all going to end up? Like, where are these people going to, cause you know, eventually they're all going to intersect and like, they're all going to mean something to one another. And when it actually happens, it's just that like, it, it feels like him playing. Cause obviously like he talks, they drop about like Neil reading Camus and, and existentialist literature, like French literature in prison and stuff. And he's getting into that feeling too, but using genre to kind of uh, evoke those emotions of like, his movies are very much about the existential man, the man who like looks beyond the horizon and wonders what's waiting for him in the end, because as all of his protagonists say in one form or another, time is luck. As much time as you get on this earth, like that's as lucky as you are. Yeah. It's um, the moment you're talking about though, too, is uh, that did hit me as well, where you have the sense that Neil, um, his, the things he had left undone in his life. I mean, the death of, of uh, his true love and Wardell getting away that now Vincent is even he doesn't really know it has through fate is completing the work um, of his friend in a way, you know, he it's the way that they're still connected because regardless of the fact they were opposite side of the law, they were both men of honor again. And that people like Wardell and Wayne grow, that's one thing they can always agree on is like, you're either a man of honor or you aren't. And like, I'm not going to like putting you down, but War, you know, someone like Wardell she gets shot in the fucking head. You He's know? a dog. He's a dog, you know? And I, and I love that. And something that, you know, we've, we've mentioned again is like the heat Two is very much this like greatest hits again of Michael Mann, right? It's all the things he's interested in. And so for fans like us, it's just catnip, right? Like it's, it's having like, there's lines in this, like a dialogue. My favorite line I underlined it is, is when Wardell says, we're coming out of the gate full apocalypse. It's like no one would ever say that, but a Michael Mann character, that shit is like noir poetry, like neo-noir poetry is like what man's good at. Well, and he also does like in running through his greatest hits, he recreates the scenarios that like his other works like included and always felt fantastical in a way Um, specifically like one of the other moments that almost made like my heart explode on the page is when Chris is escaping because it, it 
the book like literally picks up like the prologue to the book is almost like a crime scene report recapping yeah. of heat which it itself is completely breathtaking it's like five because pages. It, it's five <laughs> pages it recaps a hundred and what 81 minute movie into like these five like almost newspaper style reportings and like nothing else in the book reads like that it's just like and by the end and it literally ends with and only Christian hairless survived and it's like you pick up with Christian hairless nursing the wounds that he sustained uh, from Hannah's assault team like during the bank robbery at like a, a stash house that Nate fucking John Voigt yep. is overseeing. Nate playing a huge role in this novel a much too. bigger role, yeah. You get, awesome. you get more of that, which is you get, cool. You get a lot of Tom Noonan's... Uh, Kelso. Like, yeah, Kelso. I his, love his, that character. Uh, crippled uh, computer hacker plays a huge role in Chris's future. Who would have fucking thought? Those are the moments that feel the most like fan fiction to me. To but where I'm he's here like, for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I'm again... Because like he even describes it as like Kelso has like a huge almost like Santa Claus beard now lives in like south central la with like his gangbanger girlfriend who like in like this this shack that's comprised of nothing but like almost again cia level like computer hacking equipment it's so fucking awesome again fantastical but like one of the great moments is that you know chris picks up nate helps smuggle him out of the country and he's essentially given uh, a, a Latino gangbanger as like his coyote to get him across the border into South America. And she stops because he requests a telephone and he is given like a, almost like a sat phone, like one of those old style, like uh, cellular telephones you would see in like your dad's car that took up the whole center console, yeah. but he's able to the, like the lethal weapon. Phone. Yeah, no, yeah. but he's able to walk out into the desert and make one phone call to Charlene. But that phone call to Charlene meant that recaptures the moment in uh, Miami Vice when Don Johnson and like I believe it's the pilot um, call was it real? Where they're going after Calderon and it stops yep. and it goes, just tell me something. He calls his ex wife in this like lone phone booth flanked by water and like this giant neon sign. It just doesn't exist anywhere in reality. And he makes the phone call to his estranged wife and asks her, tell me, was it real? Like the hairless phone call in the middle of the desert contains the same, like, like just heart exploding energy. And like, like you said, elemental romanticism to where you're like, man, you're just, you're cranking it up to 11. I, I, I can't fault you at all. You know how they say that, like, um, like romance comedy, like romantic comedies for women, kind of screw or or like Prince Charming narratives screw up their idea of what real love is because they're looking for Prince Charming. He doesn't exist. I feel like Michael Mann has fucked up my idea of what romance is because I these movies like this doesn't exist in real life. Like this kind of like elemental. I do even elemental love, but like this kind of simplistic, like very like soulful you know, across time kind of romanticism. I wish it did. It doesn't exist in my life right now, but it kind of has given me these, these higher expectations for what romance is. On the flip side of that, think about the, the real life women who have, have shared Michael Mann's life and love with him, like, and how shitty they must feel is that they're like, the thing you value most are these guys who will like, walk away at a moment's notice and just basically live in exile and long and pine for you for the rest of their lives. Cause even like uh, Willie Nelson's character, who's like the mentor to, to James Kahn, 
has that amazing like the collage like, photo collage of like the perfect family that exists in his head and that's what he longs for for the rest of his life and like prison like that's the Michael Mann protagonist like he's the guy who's like willing to like love you but also leave you if it means that he has to go off and, and shake the cops and continue like adhering to his code it's like that's fucked up <laughs> absolutely um you know, thinking about these characters and thinking about like this greatest hits kind of plot, um, what actually the book really helped me kind of just put into order um, and understand some of his later films better. Um, you've been a big f- fan of Black Hat for longer than I have. It did not hit with me. I was I was disappointed. Um, but I but the world is wrong about Black Hat. <laughs> but reading the book Heat Two, like it really put that into perspective for me. Where he even says. Um, about the characters from the first film is like, we were, you know, um, we were 19th century bandits, like at the end of, end of our, our rope, you know, it's very much like the wild bunch, right. Of like, there's an end of an era for this type of criminal. And I was like, Oh shit. So like what you see in Miami vice and what you see in this, in this story and public uh, enemies, and, and that's uh, all what public well, enemies it, is about. Well, ex- exactly. But in terms of like more of the modern age is the idea that computers are replacing like classic criminals, right? That you no longer need to do a shootout downtown LA. You can do as much thievery with a you know click of a button. So you had the you know the, the villain in Black Hat is very much that of like he can not just take money but kill people, you know, from a distance and with impunity. And it's like, how do you compete with that? You see Chris kind of being the bridge between those two worlds. And he too, right, of this guy who was very physical. But learning about the possibilities he keeps talking about becoming is like the possibilities of technology and what he could do with this, with this connection and where he could go. But then also at the same time, with his kind of climax down in, in, in Paraguay, what he you still need to be physical sometimes. Well, that's you, you what know. I was going to say is that it's literally about a guy who's existed for the majority of his life in the virtual world, transitioning into the the tangible world. I mean, it's even to that great Viola Davis line in Black Hat where she like disses the one dude. Is that tangible enough for you, Gary? Yep. yep. But like if you watch even that like whole sequence where he ends up knifing his adversary and it, it's literally Chris... Uh, or wait. Well, so, so I was talking about Heat too, but it says, yeah, you know, Chris Hemsworth as well. Yeah. Yeah. Should we go back? It's literally Chris Hemsworth's hacker character uh, going back to prison rules and like strapping the books onto him and everything right. and knifing the a shiv, dude. Yeah. But like man even creates, if you watch it, and this was the, the the thing that totally struck me the first time, even when I watched it, is that when you it it all takes place in this like ornamental like dance with like this tribe, this whole tribe that's around them. They're doing fire and everything. But if you watch and the way man shoots it with all these wide angles, the tribes torches that are part of their ceremony become a computer grip that he like navigates as a flesh and blood human being. Oh, it's cool. still about a guy like navigating through a system in order to bring his own sense of like old school death and violence to an adversary. It's, it's boiling down the digital to do to, to the, the flesh. And it's like, it's almost Cronenbergian in a way. It's fucking awesome. No, very much. Cause again, and again, it connects to heat too. Very similar of the, the Shirley's character doing the same of like that mix of like, okay, even in this world of technology, like 
there's still need for tactical men. You know, that there's, you still need an enforcer. You know, it's that kind of give and take between that. Yeah, because that entire end sequence in Heat 2 where he, like, organizes, like, an Israeli death squad to come in Fucking and, like, sets awesome. up a whole trap. Like, let's talk about the action set pieces as a whole in this book. Like, I would murder a small Paraguayan village in order to see these filmed on the big screen before Michael Mann passes. Because there's two in particular that are amazing. Three, really. There's the Mexican cartel raid in the middle that takes up literally the middle of the book. Yeah. It's like, I believe the book's broken up into all these chronology or chronologically kind of reordered sections. And I yeah. believe it's section four of the mm-hmm. book that takes so. up. And it's like 180, 200 pages that takes up this whole like middle chunk and ends with the tragedy in Neil's life. Uh, and it's like, but it, the, the job that they're pulling is they're, they're raiding an Asian hotel in the middle of nowhere in Mexico. And that's been hollowed out by the cartel as basically a stash house. But the, the hollowed out version of the, the motel becomes a rat race. Yeah, it's like a maze Yeah, it's inside. like a maze to, to trap anybody who goes in there. And Michael Mann writes it as basically, you know, uh, Macaulay and his crew like going in as these tactical, like almost militaristic men of violence and like storming this place and just taking everybody out. It's like fucking incredible and then there's the the end raid that we kind of just talked about to where like chris and his his lover slash partner anna lou like they set up this business they split her off but they know like her family and their rivals are always going to come back and try to kill them no matter what unless they wipe them off the face of the planet so chris engineers this like Again, almost militaristic style raid where he kills everybody and it goes on for like 20 pages and it's just people getting machine gunned to death and you're like, this is fucking awesome. But the other one that's amazing, the freeway chase yes. with Hannah, Chris, and Wardell. Otis Wardell where Wardell tries to get away and kidnaps Gabriella, uh, Neil's like surrogate daughter in the future. It's chaotic. Like, it's fucking awesome. Awesome. Also, would cost like a hundred million dollars by itself because they know they do it like it's Wardell like driving the wrong way down the L.A. freeway, crashing fucking cars. There's a machine gun battle at the end. They blow up an oil tanker. You're like, oh my god, give me this now. This is Terminator <laughs> Two shit. <laughs> yeah, that scene. I also love. There's the early scene where uh, Neil, sorry, where Vincent almost catches Wardell. Basically, oh yeah, because the, the that's a section I really like too. Is it's very Manhunter, right? It's very much like him doing the kind of bre- following the trail of breadcrumbs to catch Wardell. Because that's the thing about about Wardell's character, like Wayne Grow, he's not smart. Like the one, if there is one problem with his character, I, so my my writing partner Yvonne, like he read the book, he goes, "That guy is really fucking lucky." Like it's like. It, and I know he's like pure evil, but he he keeps getting away like very easily. Um, uh, earlier he gets in the story, away through pure sadism though, so it kind of works with his character. Yeah. Like because he's willing he's to like basically just yeah, yeah completely crash into everything. He tortures a guy to find out all the information on Neil's like Mexico raid. Like at the end, ends up killing the love of Neil's life potentially in order to get away. Like I don't know how. It is some luck, but I'm also like, 
he's a straight up like villain. Like he's horrible and he'll kill anything in his path. Like that's what I really like about him. The only place I'd push back where I really like the Wardell character and I feel bad. Yeah, I like him. Like I, I feel bad saying that I want more of this part of the book, but the fact that he, so basically at the end of the, the cartel section of the book, he kills Neil's lover takes the money that they get, which is like a couple million bucks, and then vanishes into the ether. And when we pick up with him in 2000, we find out that he basically took the money and invested in a string of flea bag motels that he runs, like he lets pimps like run hookers out of and, and like takes his cut of, which is like so true to this scumbag version of this character. And I would watch like, like if this were an HBO series, I would want like two or three episodes just exploring Wardell's like world because it's so love that trash world. and yeah. scummy and gross. And I was like, Oh, what's going on here? Like, I just didn't see it taking that hard exploitation kind of curve. Yeah. Cause I mean, like, like Wangro, I mean, he's a murderer too. So he, I mean, because Winger is a straight up serial killer. Yeah, and he and and Wardell is using this setup of these hotels as a way to basically kill young girls and get away with it. Like that's also kind of his. Yeah, he's like, I get to use this money to have a basically string of women to kill, and it's fucked up. Um, it's real gross. But you know, I like because you have you have this stuff with uh, with Hannah because it's like they're all back in L.A. and and Hannah does the thing he kind of did with with Neil is like Wardell's here. Yeah, like he has the scent. It's like that great. You it's know, the hunter gets the the scent of his prey. I know. I the this, track this guy. I know this guy from you know twelve years ago. Yeah, you know he and he's back. So here's the point. There's the part of the book that I don't one hundred percent buy. Is that like as good of a narrative engineer as man is? I don't get that. Like. Hannah was in Chicago yes. while all this stuff happened, and Hannah then and, was and in Neil. LA in '95 to to hunt Neil again, and then 2000, it all comes together. Like, there's a little bit of coincidence, which again, is it fate? Like, are, are we? You could also make the argument that it's part of like man's fascination with the idea of fate and how time is luck and how gravity is like probability; it always catches up with you. Like, it's all the shit that he. Like, right. is fascinated by it's just you as a reader have to take the, the the leap of faith with him as well and if you're a super fan as we are like we're like yeah of course like this is all gonna make sense who gives a shit yeah I, I, that's actually no joke the biggest gripe i have with the narrative is that because it's like even with the idea of fate it pushes coincidence pretty far because again I, I, even early on i was like wait neil and Vincent were both in Chicago at the same time. Yeah, I well, kind of wrinkled my nose up a little bit the way like, you're doing. I was like, oh, like, so they kind of were mm. like, that, and it's kind of cute too, the idea that like, oh, they were already passing each other's worlds, they just didn't know it yet. And again, like almost like a romance, you know? It's like, all right, but I'll I'll forgive it. Because again, it's, it is this orchestrated thing where everything kind of comes together and I think is handled pretty well. Um, it's so fucking thrilling too. Like it's just yeah. the one thing that we've left out as we get into all of these like lofty analysis about auteurism and fate and, and spiritualism and existential romance and all these bullshit pretentious <laughs> like terms that we're throwing out there. It's just a cracking fucking thriller. Like it almost like a straight up airport novel 
this movie cooks or this book I should say cooks it's frankly it's it's the best movie I've seen all year because in my head I'm like nothing beats this right now like it's just so fucking awesome because like you talked about how you know Meg Gardner is probably reeling him in a little or at least like adding some polish to like to to man's rough edges as a novelist but like the punchy prose, it's almost Hemingway-esque at, at certain oh, yeah. points to where it's just, it's very direct. It's very like, it, it reads sometimes like a script. Oh, yeah. You know, but it's like, it, it just, it cooks in a way that you're like, I'm never, I just, I don't want to put this fucking thing down. Like I, when I finally decided like, all right, I'm done with this. Like I got to I'm plowing through to the end. I stayed up till two 30 in the morning, just fucking ripping through pages because like that end section where they all converge in LA is like as thrilling as anything at any movie I've seen in the last 10 years. Like my hair was completely blown back the whole time. Yeah. It's like, it's like Tolstoy wrote an action novel. It's just like these like interconnected stuff This long, epic, many, many threads coming together. It's, um, I would agree because I, mean, I think all his films, that's why I love him too, is like you can come to Manhunter and just be like, it's a, it's a good serial killer movie. Like you can just turn off your brain and be like, that's yeah. a solid serial killer. But it's also got a lot more going on. And as a filmmaker and as a writer, um, and he heats that too. I mean, the movie, like rewatching it yesterday, the movie also just fucking cooks. I mean, it's like just done before you know it. You're like, oh shit, I just watched two hours and 15 more minutes and it feels like no time has passed at all. Versus some films, like, you know, Meatballs 2 felt like it was 15 hours long and it's like, a, you know, 85 minutes. Um, and he. Clerks it, 3 felt like I was having a heart attack. Oh, God, I hate you for that still. You know, but that's the thing. I think he also, he never, he's an entertainer. Like, it, that, that's, like you said, you throw these pretentious, these pretentious words around. I think he's a very pretentious guy, but I think he also knows. I mean, here's a guy who talks He's 80 about, fucking years old and making a biography of Enzo Ferrari. It's yeah. like, what are you doing? But I mean, you know, that's another thing you brought up though about the book is it seems like this is more even insane action than anything he's done before because the oil tanker, for example, that, and I'm also thinking about the scene where Neil, where Vincent almost catches Wardell in Chicago. He's on the fucking hood of his car, like being driven around. Oh like, yeah. Like that's a fucking like Walter Hill moment. You know, so there's these scenes that are very much like he throws a stool pigeon off the fucking roof. Right. There's there's straight up like De Palma or like Walter Hill or just straight up like Yon, Yon de Bond or just like action action movie stuff where it's like, okay, this is big, this is fun, it's a little broader when it wants to be, because even the amazing action and heat is so focused on the detail. You think with the shootout, and it's like that's a crazy action scene, but it's also like this tactical thing. They're not hot. They're not doing like, it's not a huge car chase. The car's crashing into each other. It very quickly turns into this. How would this actually be if this happened? You know, the book feels more. Well, I take it if we're, if we're still talking about this book as almost like a greatest hits uh, album. I mean, take the uh, club shootout, the club fever shootout Collateral. collateral, which is just a straight up, balls to the wall, meat and potatoes action sequence. Like yeah. there's nothing pretentious about that. It's just like it's John Wicky. Yeah. Thing. Watch Tom Cruise fuck dudes up for like 10 minutes. And like, yeah, it is very John Wicky, but it, it goes back to what you were saying is that he's an entertainer. 
He's just like, he likes this stuff as much as we do. He loves in heat. When those fucking guns go off, there's a reason that's so fucking loud. Like he wants you to feel that shit in your goddamn chest every time they unload like three round bursts at each other. Like in fever, like when he fucking cut, like when Tom Cruise like oh basically legs that dude and then crushes his arm and then is just marching through that fucking dance floor. Like he wants you to feel the pulse of that techno. He wants you to hear the crunch of that dude's leg. He wants you to feel those gunshots. Like he loves that shit. Is like the details to him are like it's not just about getting it right. It's that when you get it right, that's what delivers that feeling. Precision in emotion is just as important to him as anything else. No, well put. I think another scene that really shows that is in Miami Vice when they storm the trailer park is that scene. Oh my God. Like the sniper w- sequence where she shoots him in the fucking head. Yeah. When you get into the, when they get in the trailer and he does this like wide angle photography on, on, uh, on tubs and the guy's crawling forward and tubs just fucking ghost. The guy kills him immediately, like straight up, no mercy. And then her explaining and, and like, but also like this, it's, you're right. The details he focuses on is like, it's so physical. And sometimes honestly, cause like Walter Hill is a guy who also has a punchy, like busting through windows, a little bit more extreme, almost like what Rodriguez has run with, but this you're right. Still, it's like realistic, but still has those pulpy genre crack, you know, every, the sound, the, the, the image, the, the every way he shoots it. It's very, it's very visceral. And then he actually kind of redoes the collateral scene at the beginning of Miami Vice as well. You know, the, the dance club scene where where Rico and um, Crockett are walking forward and Rico's, pardon me, like they're kind of taking these dudes down, you know, le- you know letting them. It's prostitution uh, sting. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's the greatest cold open possibly of any action film of all time. Like the, the theatrical cut of Miami yes. Vice is like arguably... Again, the most man, and you can make the argument that that's his best movie. Uh, like, there's multiple movies in his filmography where I could be like, hmm, maybe that's the best. It's like to go back to the idea of him zagging when we expect him to zig with other crime films. It's like The Insider, possibly his best movie. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Ali, like, not his best, but like, it's so wildly experimental and starts his fascination with digital, like with that opening, like training montage and everything. But like that remolded biopics to where like, I just saw Andrew Dominic's blonde and like two of the movies I thought about with his like Marilyn Monroe biopic is that is twin peaks Firewalk with me. Like that's what he's doing just with Marilyn Monroe. It's like one of the most harrowing borderline horror movies that I've ever seen, but also like, He's doing Ali with Marilyn Monroe. Like he's doing this fragmented uh, study of like a person trying to self-actualize and figure out like becoming like who they are. Yeah. Like you go back to the beginning of the episode. Like you said, like a lot of his movies are about becoming like people becoming what they're supposed to be. And that's what Ali is all about. It's about Muhammad Ali, like figuring out like, am I Cassius Clay? Am I Muhammad Ali? Who am I to like, the Black Panthers, who am I to the United States of America? Should I go fight in this war? Should I just, why the rumble in the jungle? It's just like all of these things that are converging at once. And like, also like why it reminded me of Blonde or Blonde reminded me of it so much is that it's also about like how people try to take the image mm. of famous people and pervert it for their own causes because that's pretty much all of what Blonde is about. It's all about how like, 
a, a, a persona was created for Marilyn Monroe and then violated time and time again by all of these different men in Hollywood for their own purposes and in different ways. Ali's kind of about the same thing is that it's literally about like, like this guy who rose to such immaculate like prominence that like he became the shining beacon of hope for all of these different groups, sometimes in the wrong perverse way. I I rewatched Ali recently, and it, it's not one that's usually uh, one I watch a lot in my rewatches of Michael Mann. But watching it, I'm like, holy shit! Like this is really fantastic. And to your point about like the zagging, which I think, and to your earlier point about like how Mann kind of taught you about auteur theory, right? And he was the, he was very similar for me, where I'd seen Heat, and then I started watching other movies that I already liked, and I didn't re- I wasn't even paying attention who made them. I was like, wait, Michael Mann has made all the movies I like. It was this weird thing where I like had picked out movies and I was like, Oh, that's the same guy that even when he zags and makes things very different from the other films, like the heart and like the theme is the same. Like it's consistent from like thief until the modern age of like the things again that he's interested in. And that's what I love. It's like when you peel away the details and the way he'll zag stylistically and the way he tells the narrative and you know, the time period and all that, it's still man. <laughs> like it's still underneath there. And that's, I think he's why that's why I love him so much is that again, he never strays from what he finds interesting. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to do something totally different and like, I'm going to change my style. It's like, no, I want to try digital for a while. Or I want to tell a story about Ali. And like, sometimes he even like approaches it sideways to a fault, you Mm -hmm. know, because like public enemies, one of the biggest problems that a lot of people have with that movie is simply just the digital aesthetic to a like applied to a period piece because like our brains have been wired for however many years, like stretching back literally to like the beginnings of cinema that like periods are supposed to look one way. Like, and he's taking literally like James Cagney style gangster pictures and applying this brand new technology to it. And like our brains aren't calibrated to watch movies that way. That's was always my theory as to why people rejected public enemies outright is because it's like digital isn't supposed to be applied to a period piece. Like a period piece is supposed to look like the assassination of Jesse James to yes. bring up Andrew Dominic. Se- sepia all the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's supposed to, or if we're sticking with like gangster movies, we, you talked about the Godfather, Godfather earlier, too. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. the heat Two comparisons. Like that's what these movies are supposed to look like. They're supposed to almost replicate the feeling of flipping through the pages of history to where man was like, what if the pages of history were presented to you in an ebook? Like that's pretty fucking awesome. Well, and and it, you think back to last the Mohicans. Then we talked about this on the Manhunter episode. Was there was a synth score for that first, right? And it's like what he did with the Keep. The Keep takes place in World War II. Has a Tangerine Dream score. It's awesome, you know, Tangerine Dream score. But like, it's weird. You know, it's a horror film, so it's more forgivable. It's like okay, it makes sense. But like, he was gonna do a full on like early '90s synth score for. Last of the Mohicans, and I think I'm not sure what happened. I don't think it worked out, but the studio might have also been like, "No, no, no!" <laughs> like the, the keep feels the most European of all of his films. It almost it's feels the like his, it, yeah, it's his Lucio Fulci movie. Is that like even right down to like applying like like Tangerine Dream is basically like his Goblin. There. Yes, it's just yeah. he's applying this modern sonic aesthetic to like these gothic images that sometimes are still incredibly breathtaking like despite all of the problems that plagued that fucking movie and led him to basically like disown it completely like even that shot of the the boat 
crossing the sea oh, with my like favorite scene. Don, yeah and then that that tangerine dream score is rising behind it and everything it's just it's ethereal it feels like again man almost like interpreting like uh uh, uh like the pages of the original dracula that's my it's honestly one of my favorite man scenes period like that's like what the, the keep is like even though it's, it's it's problematic for a lot of reasons not like like cancel problematic, but just like has issues as a narrative. It's fucked uh, up. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it was, it, there was a three hour cut and it made a lot more sense. And like the special effects designer passed away, sadly while they're making it. It's the whole scene. Yeah. They were going to film. They couldn't do all the Gollum dude is like a dude literally in a suit that he couldn't move in. So that's why he looks like a big bulky, like pro wrestler. Yep. And they had, um, what also like he didn't have a script. He yeah. goes, it's the last time I'm going to a film without a finished script. And then he never did again. You know, he comes back with Manhunter. Well, and also wasn't there, there was a bunch of weather stuff that went on too, mm. where like the shoot itself, just the, the actual like nuts and bolts of shooting, like mother nature swooped in almost like fury roaded that shit. Yeah. And I think there's a case too. So I read, I've read the book, the keep. No, I've always heard it. It's nothing like the movie itself. It's phenomenal too. Like and it's the people. Yeah, the people who like it are like huge fans of it. It's just well, it's it's action horror. It's full on like the idea of hey, what if there were you know Nazis who were holding up in a Romanian keep and then a monster got out and started killing them, and making them go crazy. Go like, and it plays like that, and it's exciting, and it's scary, and it's like got a really cool mythology, um, and you watch the film and he very similar to his actual like distaste for the source material for last Mohicans. Like he's kind of an asshole about it. He's like, Oh, the Fenimore Cooper book, complete shit. I'm like, all right, let's calm down. Like my mom used to teach that book in, in English class. And she was like, well, he hated the first movie too. Yeah, was yep. one of the reasons. Cause he said that, wasn't it like the first movie he'd ever seen? I believe, Something. or like one of the earliest. And he was like, it always stuck with me as being a piece of shit. And you're like, damn son. Yeah, he he's like not, but he, I think he was very similar to Keep of like, here's this like popular, you know, paperback that I think is shit, but I'm gonna make my artsy interpretation. Interpretation. Of it. But you know what? I feel like we could go deep on this for like hours at a time, and this is a podcast, and nobody's gonna listen to the. Maybe somebody would listen <laughs> to the six. I know Brandon <laughs> is out there listening. He would listen to the six hour cut of this, but. We got to get to questions before hour three. So you want to do that now? Yes. All right.
And we're back with questions about 1995's Heat. Martin, we're going to do this a little differently this time. Cool. So we're going to stick with our usual. We're going to do double feature. And then we're going to do, uh, instead of top five man, we're going to do most undervalued man. Okay. I want to see which one we come with. Like, what, what, what Michael Mann movie do both of us think is like the one that's either gets unfairly maligned or like adds more to his filmography than is ever given credit for. And then we're going to do face melter like usual, but then before face melter, we're going to do something, uh, unprecedented on this podcast. We're going to fan cast. Yes. We're going to try and figure out and not even just fan cast. You know, one of the, the stories that has come out as Michael Mann has been doing the press tour for heat too, is that he is full on said, like, I plan to make this movie. Michael Mann, you are 80 fucking years old. You could you could only direct a pilot for Tokyo Vice and then handed that fucking show over to a bunch of journeymen. Like, no, sir, that's not going to happen. So, like, I want to talk about, like, how do you make Heat 2? Because there's a lot of, let's say, hurdles to get through beyond just casting and like fan casting. So we're going to, we're going to say like, who, who's our Otis Wardell going to be, but we're also going to be like, how the fuck does this movie even get made? Do you want to do that? Yes. All Sounds right. Good. But before we get down that path, that long winding path, because that, that could end up in this podcast being six hours long. What is the most undervalued Michael Mann movie? I would. So, we kind of already talked about it before. I think Ali um, might be it. It's uh, me personally. I skip over it quite a bit, but when I do rewatch it, um, it again connects to everything else he does. I think the keep is too difficult to. That would be like a complete contrarian thing of oh, let's keep. No, it's also not good. It's 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 not good. And like we did watch for my birthday last year, that thirty five. That was beautiful. I still like it. I love the soundtrack. There's there's elements I love. I would say I would probably push for Ali and then I'm, sure. I'm coming around on um, Black Hat um, and Public Enemies. I still just can't crack for me. Um, I rewatched it recently and for just I can't get through it. I mean, I, I, I don't hate the movie, but just I think my brain, like you said, can't handle the digital photography. They're going to sequences like the whole shootout in the woods in Wisconsin. Top, you know, top scene for man. But I don't know. What, what do you think? Public Enemies is mine. Mm, okay. Like, I, I've i loved that movie since seeing it on open opening night in, what, 2006? 2009. 2009 when it came out. Um, I think it's a gorgeous movie, despite people having a problem with the digital. If there is a technical flaw in the film, it's the sound design, I do think. It feels thin. It's thin, it's tinny at times, and frankly, like, there are rumors behind the scenes that man has been le- losing his hearing for a long time and that he wouldn't... I, I talked to a couple... I don't want to tell any tales, like, outside of class or whatever, but I have talked to a couple people who did work as, like, sound editors and stuff on it to where, like, they would fix it to be like basically audible <laughs> more or less. Cause there's whole chunks where they're like, especially like an early, like getaway when they they're getting out of the, 
the you know, one of the prison breaks, like they're in the car, like running off and they're trying to talk to each other. And like, you literally can't hear the dialogue over the car horn. It sounds like almost like one of your student films where you were still learning, like how to, to do Foley sound and shit. Yeah. Um, so like there are bad moments, but there would be moments apparently where they would fix the audio to be like, Oh no, we'll tweak it here and here. And he would change it back because he wanted to replicate some kind of like immediacy or like you're, you're kind of in the moment. Cause that's one of the big arguments that he makes for the digital too, uh, and applying it to a period piece is that it brings a sense of modern immediacy to the past, let's say, and it allows you to enter in a, a new way, which I, I like that as a thought exercise more than an actual application of the digital. I still think like I like the the experiment, the idea of like movies like this have never looked this way and possibly shouldn't look this way. So like why not fuck around with it? It's like it's why I get so bored with like movies like as much as I like something like Troy or even some of the Ridley Scott stuff like Kingdom of Heaven or whatever is that or like um trying to think of other like modern gangster. Oh, there's one that's like the bad version of public enemies is that, that gangster squad. Oh, Ruben Fleischer is like the, that's the guy who like makes the, the bland version of public enemies. And that's, that's my problem with it is that it's almost like you complain about a guy, a true auteur applying like his paintbrush to this very singular and, and tried and true kind of canvas but like at the same time, this other guy who's not that good does it and you go, yeah, but that's what you get if you don't let a guy like man fuck around. And I'd rather like let that guy fuck around than watch a Ruben Fleischer movie, frankly. Yeah, that's fair. No, I, again, I think for me, just I can't, it might be the visual hurdle. It might be the fact that like, I don't love Depp in it either. Um, I do. I, I really like him and Bale even more. I like Bale more because I, I know that like they say in the end, like, Purvis killed himself, you know, later in his life. And it, it, you feel this kind of like morose nature to him. And there's, and there's also, again, you could see man playing with the idea of, you know, it's the same thing of a cop chasing down his, his equal, you know, and the respect he has for him. Um, and it's, so he's, he's still playing the same themes. Let me pose a question to you about public enemies that I've, again, if we're going to go down kind of thought exercise avenues here, we might as well just go whole hog with it. Would you like Public Enemies better if it was Stephen Lang's movie? Yes, that's that's always 100%. been my other argument. Every time he's on like, set, it's everything. Yeah, amazing. he brings an electricity to that film that like you can't escape. It really when he shows up halfway through, roughly yep. when the U.S. Marshals kind of or they're Texas Texas Marshals, Rangers, yeah, Texas Rangers yeah. come in. Like that's like it just really kind of holds it up on its shoulders and everything. But it gets, it gets cool. Yeah, like he just gets cooler for some reason. It's he, like, man, one of the great joys of my life is that a couple years ago, right before the pandemic, um, or actually about the 2018, I want to say. the VFW? Yeah, the VFW party at Fantastic Fest is I got to meet Stephen Lang and actually talk to him about working with Michael Mann. And like, he was the coolest, chillest dude. I've just, heard he's nice. Just, yeah. just stood there, shorter than I thought, like, but like, it was still, he's fucking Stephen Lang talking to you with that gravelly voice and looking with those dead, like, cold ass eyes, like he's going to kick the shit out of you. But he's just so warm and inviting, standing there with like his vodka soda in his hand and being like, I'll never forget his one direct quote he says to me, he goes, 
I think me and Michael, we got like one more left in us together. And oh, I'm like, shit. dude, if you make a movie with Michael Mann, I'm there day one, man. Like, he was really, really fucking cool. But again, like, I feel like if it was his movie, which again was kind of done with um, that John Lee Hancock film with Woody uh, Harrelson. Highwaymen. Yeah, yeah, which is terrible. Yeah, it's it, bad. Like, an interminable slog. He's a bad film. filmmaker. But yeah, not a good filmmaker. But also, like, to bring it back to the Ruben Fleischer, like, Gangster Squad thing, is that that's the the boring version of Public Enemies. It's like, if you shoot it traditionally, if you make just, like, a TNT-style melodrama out of it, like... Eh, I'd rather, again, watch a true auteur kind of fuck around and splatter paint all over the digital canvas. Um, Somebody with a perspective. Yeah, at least a, or at least a, a point of view and like a thought process to where he's like, I'm going to try this. You might not like it. Now, the other argument I would make for public enemies is that so Ali is the first dabblings that man does with digital. And yeah. it's specifically in... That uh, early training montage where it cuts to some digital camera and the work fight scenes uses. later with the, yeah. the mini cams he did on the on the shoulders because I believe he's using the Vipers. He's using like experimental digital cameras at that point, and then Collateral takes that is all Viper. It's all Viper because um, that's Dion Beebe, right? Who shoots that? Yeah, Dion Beebe. There was he fills in for somebody who I can't. Yeah, remember. they both get credit. Then DMBB alone did Miami Vice, right? Because it's after so Spinati did everything through Ali, right? Yeah, and then so here's the thing about it is that Public Enemies comes and kind of like it's almost proto Black Hat in a weird way. Because only it, it's Black Hat almost like reverse engineered yeah. to where it's about a, the, tangible, the tangible man being run off of the planet because of a new, not necessarily digital age, but I always remember that scene where yeah. John Ortiz is the, the bookmaking the, the stuff. Bookmaking stuff and he comes down and like John Dillinger's literally walking through like this whole wire room and it like that's like man replicates that visually with black hat where Chris Hemsworth and then the hackers walk through that whole computer grid, like in the very beginning, like that glowing, like that giant kind of bank of servers and stuff. That's him beginning to play with that idea. And then he would kind of see that through to fruition because you get like, like collaterals, obviously like the first and probably most people's favorite, like of his digital age, let's say, Miami Vice to me is always the stone masterpiece oh, yeah. that came out of there. And Public Enemies and Black Hat were like the somewhat, fl- in my idea, like more somewhat flawed, not as heavily flawed as others see them as being, but him like trying to see that through and apply his his kind of tried and true themes to a new set of like digital and like uh, visual fascinations. And like you see Dillinger walking through all those telephone lines and then you see like the computer servers and it's man possibly even applying that, that auto critique to himself and being like, what does it feel like to be an antiquated dinosaur? In yeah. A, a to go digital extinct. age. That's kind of like, yeah, exactly. That's moving past you. So I wonder if you can kind of pathologize him a little bit through those two movies, but that's again, a whole other podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. You know, um, cause it, again, it is the idea of like, he talks about in heat too, of, you know, in this new digital age, is there, is there room for the kind of classic outlaw? Right, you know, and for like you said, it's kind of like with bookmaking in the 1930s. It's like, oh, hey, like 
you don't need to rob banks. Like organized crime is where it's at. Like we're going to just be doing, you know, just grifting all day long with these phones and like taking bets. And we're going to make more in a day than you make all year. You know, you're, you're obsolete. Well, it's again, it's about the, the individual navigating a new power system Yep, that doesn't have any kind of want or desire for their skill set. Yes. It's like they, they've been aged out of the system. Double feature. Go. So if I was thinking about it. I've been looking and I found the one. Um, Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper. And I, I believe this will be the second or third time this movie has been recommended on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> like we just, if anything, we should rename Secret Handshake the Light Sleeper podcast because like we, we love this movie. And it's, and for this one though, and I think, I hope I didn't double feature for Manhunter. I don't think I did. Um, but Schrader and Man have so, we've talked before, but they have so much overlap in terms of like what they're interested in. They're very different because, they both have lonely men um, and, you know, the whole man alone in his room that kind of Schrader made his entire career on his journaling. Yeah. Is still doing now the, his characters are much more monastic. You know, you think about up to card counter of like him coming into hotel room, wrapping everything in like sheets and then journaling with a single bottle of whiskey um, when apparently Master Gardener is like the completion of his modern kind of trilogy of that to where you first have reformed. first reformed card counter and then Master Gardener, which just played Venice, I believe. Yeah, it did. Um, which is, you know, but again, I think one of the reasons that Schrader is another one of our favorite filmmakers is I think he's interested in a lot of the same stuff. Um, he's much more self-flagellating. Um, his characters, there's a lot more like self-doubt and self-hatred i don't think there's any there's not there's a searching inside inside neil but there's also a confidence of like no this is my code and it's about me sticking to it these men have codes but very early in the story it's like this obviously is not working for you dude you know because you think about like so much of it is him just wrestling with guilt yeah in some way yeah because it's you know and especially with light sleeper you had this character who has a lot of guilt about the past you know, with his relationship with Dana Delaney, his drug addiction, but a fear of the future. I mean, it's just this, it's one of the most anxious films I think I've ever seen as a person who deals with anxiety myself about this guy who's like, he says the same thing, he goes, have a run out of luck. You know, it's a similar thing of time is luck. You know, that the similar ideas of like, do I get another chance? But also that they both have a lot of the elemental love stuff. I mean, he borrows it from Brisson, the end of Pickpocket. He reuses that scene in like five movies American Gigolo, Sleeper, Card Counter. And then um, I think there's a moment in Walker. Because the Walker's the same story. Yeah, Walker's pretty close, too. And honestly, you could could argue that, like, the psychedelic, like, floating sequence in in First Reformed is, like, him calling back to that, too. It's the transcendental filmmaker stuff he's pulling on. Like, because it's it's Ozu, right? And then Dreiser. Yeah. Um, But I think that you have, again... A similar, a similar kind of idea too, because you know you have Neil, who earlier in the film, you know, opens up and is like he lets her in, and that's just put at the end of Light Sleeper. It's put at the end of American Gigolo, right? Where it's like this man finally saying, "I need to break out of my monastic existence and let someone in." Um, but the thing is, like, man, always as a person struck me as like he obviously he's been married for like over 50 years and Schrader is this much more I think like he's kind of a goblin <laughs> <laughs> you know the stories that you, stories yeah. you the stories you read about and like um 
uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls about him, you know, being the one guy who couldn't get laid or the, 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 the apocryphal story about um, uh, Nastasia Skinsky telling him, she's like, Paul, I sleep with all my directors, but it was really difficult with you, Jesus. you know, <laughs> which is really mean. But it's like, um, I just think there's a lot of crossover there, too. I would go with To Live and Die in L.A., William Friedkin. Nice. Uh, bring him back. So, and, two, so two Defoe films. Yeah, well, two Defoe films, and then also, like, bring him back William Peterson from Manhunter. Uh, one of the great nihilistic crime, like, American crime movies of all time. Uh, nobody's likable. There's no protagonist to root for. It's just a, a you know... What do they say in, in Heat? I'm just a, a needle at 60 going backwards the wrong direction. I'm, I'm starting at zero going the other other direction. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, that's what that movie is, is that it's just watching all of these guys barrel towards apocalypse and apocalypse just happens to be each other. But, you know, uh, it's about a counterfeiter played by a very uh, slimy and unsettling Willem Dafoe. Uh, Peterson is basically like a, a janky ATF man, correct? Yeah. If, if I haven't watched it in a while. Um, He's less cool than he was in Manhunter. He's kind of goofier. Yeah, but it has that crazy Wang Chung score, yep. you know, to kind of go along with the, the all of uh, Michael Mann's kind of hand-picked ambient stuff. And then that car chase just in the middle of it is like, I think, a set piece that's not as good, obviously, as the bank heist in the middle of Heat, but like, you know, it's just one of our great American auteurs, you know, showing that they can fucking shoot the hell out of action. And like Friedkin, when he's on, man, there are a few that are as good. Well, I almost picked French Connection, too. Yeah. I was just thinking of like, here's another guy or you know, another one. I was, actually, I was looking at Friedkin. And I almost picked Sorcerer because another guy used Tangerine Dream Um a story about men that's like very heavy and about male relationships. I feel like Sorcerer is more Howard Hawks. I know it's based on Clouseau film, but you know, I almost went with uh, Den of Thieves, which is like oh, always yeah. going to be dirtbag red box heat to me. <laughs> so like it, cause it's such a scummy, like low rent epic. But man, I remember seeing that movie in the theaters and nobody else would go. Like I know, like, being more or less like laughed off of the BMD slack at the time being like, yeah, sure. You can go review that if you want and go into the press screen and be like this movie fucking rules. Like Den of Thieves is so awesome. Best Gerard Butler performance of all time and kind of ushers in a whole new era of Butler to where like he, he's this like weird scumbag. Although I guess you could say Mike Banyan it's like the beginning of that with the the fallen films with Olympus has fallen, yeah. and Angel has fallen, and London has fallen. Uh, one of the great uh, scumbag exploitation movies that ever kind of escaped into to theaters inexplicably. Oh, I love those movies. But like Den of Thieves is the Gerard Butler masterpiece. Like it's so good. I love Pablo Shriver. I actually really like 50 Cent in it too. Mm. That gun battle in the middle, uh, you know, the streets at the end of LA, like 
is again kind of the low rent dirt bag equivalent of like the the bank robbery and heat. Maybe I should have gone with Den of Thieves the whole time. I also don't want to step on Brandon. I know Brandon's going to write some Den of Thieves no words way. for us uh, to go along with this podcast. So like you'll get way more Den of Thieves from Secret Handshake. But yeah, I'm going to stick with uh, To Live and Die in L.A. What a movie. What was the uh, oh Triple Nine was just terrible. Um, oh God! Yeah. The John Hillcoat film. It's not like Hillcoat. Um, Some people ride for that movie, though. I think it's fucking horrible. Because Great cast. Th- that's another movie, though, where it's like let's do Heat, but they can't do Heat. Like I agree, Den of Thieves is like a solid, trashy version. Mm-hmm. But like Triple Nine is just all over the fucking place. There's like 30 characters. Like everyone's in it. Like you said, good cast. It's a mess. Has Hillcoat ever made another good movie? Like Lawless isn't good either. No, because Pro- Proposition's almost, amazing. Yeah, Proposition almost feels like a fluke at this point. Yeah. And, and that was like also like a great cave script too. Like a great cave in Warren Ellis score. Mm. There's elements of the road that I like. Oh yeah, I forgot that's him. That one's not bad. Yeah, but it's I don't think it just like I love that book too. I don't think it it's fine. I don't yeah, think it's I don't, not great. It doesn't like really translate the feeling of the book. Which, and Lawless isn't horrible. I should take I should walk that one back. Like they're all watchable. Also a really digital ugliness though. That movie's yeah. very digitally ugly and not in a planned way. It just feels like it was shot for TV. I like that Tom Hardy had a pork chop in his mouth the entire did movie he, and talked through it. <laughs> no, I don't know that he did, but like, but he it sounds sounded like, like it. it. Oh, man. <laughs> I was like, why don't you throw a little pork chop on the grill? Yeah, Hillcut, I wish he... I, I wish, I don't know, I wish he'd had more of a career. Yeah, maybe, I just Maybe he just like didn't he, have it, I don't know. It, he feels like a guy who knocked one out of the park and just couldn't get that magic back yeah, like he, he tried and he had some really great technical skill but like he couldn't replicate the magic of the proposition that movie fucking rules that was my favorite movie of that year when it came out 2006 man yeah. well because that was also in my mind it's almost like a nick it's a nick cave movie too like full, cause they were friends they worked together fair. on on music videos and stuff and it's like that's him putting a lot of himself because he also wrote cave also wrote lawless oh, that's right yeah and it's like that's not good you no. know he also wrote the Gladiator sequel. <laughs> the time-traveling one. I would murder to see that movie made. Like a $300 million. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking acid trip shit. I would totally. Doesn't he go to hell? Doesn't doesn't I, Maximus go to hell at one point? It like straight up goes like Odysseus, like insane, uh, you know, uh, what do they call them? The, the, the Greek... Uh, with the epics. Yeah, the epics. I think he meets Jesus, too. That's it. He, he meets Jesus. He meets Jesus, yeah. <laughs> sure, fuck it. Why not? Have, re- you know what? Paul Verhoeven's still allowed. Let him shoot it. <laughs> just change. Just don't call it Gladiator. Have it be another, like, yeah. you know. Jesus warrior. Yes. <laughs> Who cares? All right. So, let's get into it. How do you make Heat 2? Should we present the problems with making Heat 2 first? Because I, there's one that's incredibly obvious that we have to get around. Kilmer. Kilmer. Because that's one of the great things about this book is that in a weird way, mm. it feels like, you know, Kilmer has his, his great moments in Top Gun Maverick, you know, almost universally agreed upon as being one of the best parts about it and like really kind of... Which you didn't like to, at first, though. I didn't like it yeah. first, but like... No, I mean like... I. 
I like it a lot now, but it took me a minute to warm up to it. But like everybody else, like that was the thing is I, I kind of came around because everybody else was so enamored with it. I was like, mm, maybe I'm being too hard in this or I'm mm-hmm. missing something. And like, yeah, it it is fun. Not fun, but it it's pleasing to watch him kind of ride out into the sunset with his dignity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's the problem with Heat too is so much is about Chris that like you gotta recast Kilmer, which obviously would be part of it because it's like you can't have fat old Kilmer even without the cancer, let's say like or the in the throat issues, like like you would still have to recast that because like Kilmer's never been better looking than maybe yeah. Heat. At least they'd like He's feel, pretty gorgeous in yeah. the hair. Yeah, the hair, like maybe Top Gun is the the original Top Gun is the other one that rivals it. Real genius. I don't know. But like... uh, I love that movie. So I guess the first hurdle would be, since it's Chris's story, who plays Chris? So I was we talked about Boyd Holbrook when we were talking about it. Man, that's so good. But I also think um, Alexander Skarsgård could be interesting. No. He, He should be American probably. I don't care about nationality. Fuck that. I just don't like Alexander Skarsgård that much. Like, there's so, like, I don't he's know. He's vacant. But he's vacant. He's <laughs> vacant. But I I feel like they, the point of the Chris stuff in this is that they take the vacancy mm-hmm. and use, kind of you said this in the last segment, is that they're using it to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, where Michael still is the Michael that we knew, Treo's still Treo. Like they're they're really coloring, yeah. Like you know, and adding texture to Chris's character. Like the whole like rescuing Charlene from her like abusive pimp in Vegas and stuff, and like that whole scene. We didn't even get into that sequence, you know. Mm. So it's like that's actually one of my favorite sequences. Yeah, and it's so when good. he saves her and like they go out that, that, that stripped them, down another car chase sequence where they drive out into the desert and they go up and look down at the city and it's like they they make love on the hood they of the fuck car. They the hood of the car. And it's it, so man. Yeah, you can hear the music in your yeah. head. Like you can hear the Moby. Um well, I mean, I was also thinking I mean, it's a little bit big but like Gosling, like that kind of, you know, might be too old now. Yeah. But I'm thinking of someone because I think someone who who could also. What about Glenn Powell? He's already done it once with Top Gun. He's too goofy. Like everything he's ever been in. You, That's know, fair. you know he's from Austin, right? Yeah. Yeah, I went to high school with my, with my buddy. He he might still rip. There might be a, a a chance to get something from him we haven't gotten yet. Yeah, I like a really like quiet intensity of. I mean, again, like Hol- I think Holbrook could do it because Holbrook too. Like he was in um in the Sandman series, and he. Oh, I haven't watched that yet. Is um, that any good? I watched a little bit. It's I'm not. A, I like Gaiman. Um, sure. It's a it's a little bit just too wacky for me. Honestly, it's an acquired taste. Yeah. Um, and it takes a while to get going as the comics do as well. But like, um, he has he was a very handsome character. So other times he kind of has the kind of like his character in Gone Girl is a little bit more like kind of like dashing redneck. You know, mm. it's kind of hard to imagine him, him as, but like, I can also believe this guy has a troubled past, which Chris does criminal past, um, jail, uh, is a little rough around the edges, but also handsome enough that people are like, obviously like they say in the book, he's beautiful. Also coke to the gills. Like oh, Michael just. Mann makes no bones about the fact that when Chris is not working, he is like doing blow and drinking whiskey and like just chasing hookers. Yes. Um, I, Boyd Holbrook is the best. Yeah. Like, that's such a good answer that I can't... It's almost blocking any other thought that I I could come up with. 
Um, well, should we look at uh, at Neil? That's man, because that's the thing is that like, so I actually think this might be the harder question to answer because, you know, it picks up like we see Vincent in 95. So you would have to almost do some like digital fuckery. Yeah. uh, To, to, to like DH Pacino or like almost do like an Irishman type thing. Yeah. and, And that. I don't have as big of a problem with it as other people do, but like I, I still think the seams show on that one, um, and I wouldn't want Heat Two to be done that way because I mean that would be a thing that like ma- the man would be like, no, 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 I got this, and then it probably wouldn't turn out so great because no. he'd fuck around and then put some audio slave over it or something, <laughs> and I. I Cause that would be the tough one. Like, do you do de-aging with Pacino? Do you get almost like a stand in and do that? Or do you just cast someone like, do you cast like Oscar Isaac and break for the 88 stuff or not? And like the 88 stuff. And maybe even like, do you just do a whole new cast? You know what I'm all, saying? All like, new cast. Yeah. All new cast. And, and I, from everything I've heard, like that's the idea because like Pacino's like, I'm never I can't do it. And he yeah, goes, have you seen Pacino lately? Yeah. He doesn't look like Vincent Hanna. We'll yeah, go he that. He looks far. like a leather handbag. And, <laughs> but he uh he and I, I this is not I don't agree with you. He goes, he's like, I would recommend Timothy Chalamet. I'm like, no. Um For uh, Hannah? For Hannah. He said that. Yeah. So this is why we, we can't trust Pacino, man. Yeah. No, he's like, I like that kid. I like that kid. You know, it's like Hoo-ah. um <laughs> Get killed walking your doggy, but um, <laughs> I would go for 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 Vincent. Sorry, for, sorry for Neil. For Neil, um, he's so I'm, I was thinking of someone who's the same age as um, as the same age as De Niro was in '95. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking like start there, and then we we go back. So what? Right? Like four? I think he was in his fifties. I was gonna say. I was, so he would have to be what early f- or mid forties in the eighty eight stuff. Yeah, so he might be a little old, um, but an actor I really love um, and I think can do like the the Neil intensity is Leave Schreiber. Um, I, I really, especially his character from Ray Donovan. That's not the worst call, you know, of a guy I'm still struggling with it a little bit. Yeah, um, I got my Vincent though, like hands down. Who? Uh, Burnfall. All the way. Nah, I, get yes, the fuck out of here. I, all the fucking way, dude. I think you just lean in. I think of Burnfall and his like loud, like his character, even his like, his just scenes from the bear, but also his, you know, uh, we own the city character. And just this like yeah, charming can work a scene is just like magnetic, like absolutely magnetic. You need someone with that. I don't want a movie star. I don't think Burnthal is yet a movie star. I want someone of that kind of gritty quality. Speaking of Schrader, have you watched any of the the Burnthal American Gigolo I've series? Heard nothing yet? but bad things. Yeah, I've heard it's horrible, but I can't stay away from Burnthal or American Gigolo, so I know I'm going to watch it eventually. Let's just binge it. Like yeah, when we it's all done, blow through it. I have to. See, and the Schrader was like, "Fuck that," because they asked him years ago, I think, to do one. He's like, "That's a stupid idea." Yeah, still, still struggling with the cop. The, like I mean, I like Isaac. For Bernthal's kinda... not the worst. Isaac's pretty good. Like that would be because I'm thinking be of good a for most. Neil. No, no, I, Vincent. I could see Oscar Isaac. because like oh. Oscar Isaac doing a most violent year. Like was basically doing Michael Corleone. Yeah, 
I just think I think what I, I like when Isaac is like super cool and like yeah. and I think Hannah's cool but he's loud and I think like the quiet cool like you know like holding it all inside thing of of Macaulay could be really neat. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of other actors like I was just looking up I'm just Scott like, Adkins. Oh my god, as, as, as Macaulay as everybody <laughs> as. <laughs> It's like the clumps. Yeah, Scott Adkins <laughs> as every role in Heat too. <laughs> Just take a second and think about it. He's Charlene. Yeah. Um. Yeah, th- it's a, such a tough one. I don't, I don't. I can't think of any good Neils. Like it's it's. That's why I think it's a fool's errand to make this movie. Yeah. I mean, beyond like you said, you know. Beyond the idea that he's 80 years old, and it's like, dude, I don't think you'll, you'll finish it. Yeah. He said, oh, the you know, th- talks are in the works. But it's like also like, so you're working with Disney to make this movie because they own the rights. Here's the other question. Who plays Sizemore? Who are you bringing in to? I mean, what, I think all you could do, though, is just like stack the fuck out of this cast. I mean, like. You just, it's, everyone's a movie star or everyone is like a, a known actor. Cause man is known for that. I mean, even the, like Bud Court plays the boss. You well, know, and Dennis it's Haysburg like, that's boss. how, that's how this was like the original heat was sold too, is that it was like De Niro, Pacino, Kilmer in the great LA crime epic heat. Like it was the big selling point because you would, you would never seen those guys really like show down against one another because even like Godfather 2 yep. which they're both in like they don't share any scenes this was, this was the first then you have the even better Righteous Kill oh fuck off <laughs> yeah that, I'm really struggling with the Neil question so let's jump ahead then while I think about that one who plays your Otis Wardell like who is is coming in and being the Wayne Grow of this because I mean that's the original Wayne Grow is real fucking good yeah he's great um so you and I talked about like, I mean, he sadly passed away, but like kind of like Tom towels from Miami vice. Like that's going ahead in our mm. head. Um, but I'm thinking of like an actor I really like right now. Who's a bigger guy. Who's like a barrel, like a, you know, just a th- thicker dude is Paul Walter Hauser. Um, especially after watching blackbird, um, yeah. where he plays the serial killer and he's really phenomenal. Now he's more cutesy and weird in that, but I've seen him be more menacing and other stuff as well. And I think like he's got a lot of range and I could see him, like shaving his head and like leaning in to this role. Um, Think of this outside the box one. What about Danny McBride? But let him do a serious role. Oh shit. Yeah. You know, think about that. Like, it's like a kind of like, we've never really seen him dig into like, he's done, he's fucked around and been in like alien covenant, you know, but even then he's like the cowboy space pilot. That's, you know, still doing a little bit of Kenny powers just in a spaceship. Oh, you know who would actually be just great hmm. is Fat Hardy. Like yeah. him, him thick like Bronson, like the bald. Hardy also wouldn't be the worst Chris, especially for the oh. the Paraguay stuff. Yeah. Like when he cuts all of his hair off and like is a little leaner and like Hardy could really get into that role. Yeah. You know, he, he can't do a voice. So like maybe that might fuck him up. I don't know. What about Walton Goggins? What about him? As your 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 Wayne Grow surrogate, I mean physically not at all. No. what the book is, I I really picture. I mean, but I mean, I love Goggins. Um, I picture him as again this like thick jailbred, bald. You know, 
he's not in the Brotherhood, but he's basically that look, yeah. you know, of those guys we've seen in other man in other man films, like Tolls in Miami Vice. Exactly, exactly that character of just like these scary. And I think that you won't, he's he's like a monster, you know, to look at. You know, he should be terrifying looking. Yeah, just almost like a, a white power Hulk. Well, there was, and I don't want this. Bautista? Mm. No. He's got other, like, all his, like, I'm, I'm cute baggage. I don't know, like, everything else he's done. I don't know, man. Blade Runner 2049. He's great in that. And he's good. And a good, bald, creepy in Dune yeah. for his limited scenes. Um, but I'm thinking of the look of the guy from... Um, What's the Schrader one with uh, Defoe and Cage? Why am, I, why am I blanking? Oh, Man Bites Dog. Man Bites Dog, the third dude. Like, that look mm. of this, like, again, like, shaved head. Almost like like a Joe Rogan look is what I'm kind of imagining. Jesus. Just get Joe Rogan to come play Wardell. No. No, don't let Joe Rogan do anything ever. <laughs> That's my my vote. Yeah, Wardell's a tough one, but I I like Paul Walter Hauser like because I'd love to see him kind of unleashed as well. Um, but Danny McBride is the one that I just for whatever reason it's like when I was reading um, the Fletch books and like Brendan Gleeson just was Flynn mm-hmm. in my head. Like Danny McBride, I went mm, this could be like this fucking works yeah. in a weird way because like just let him play something straight for once and really let him kind of fire on all cylinders. That could be a lot of fun. So last but not least, I think we already know the answer. Face melter status for heat. Yes or no? I mean, it's tough. I want you to go first. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's and this one's always hard for me. This question because it's like it is hard sometimes to differentiate between face melter and like me loving a movie. Right. But this is not a film you invite a friend over who's not a movie person and pop on heat like. They may love it, but it's not going to be like again. That's your whole afternoon. Yeah, and you're not going to sh- again. It's not. It's not. Here's this crazy 80s horror film that's gory and insane you've never seen. It's like Evil Dead 2 is a face melter. Like that kind of thing where you're like, get ready. If you've never heard of this, you're going to love it. Heat is sure. Heat's a novel. That's a funny thing. He wrote it. The second, second one is a novel. <laughs> and the first one is also a very novelistic film. So I wish yeah. I could say. But yeah, I don't think he has any face melters. None? Uh, didn't you vote for Manhunters? Being yeah, a but, face I, but, but looking back, I mean... I just realized it's like collateral's close. I, I was gonna say it's the closest one. It's the purest. Yeah, that, that's an action movie. Like that's his. That's his like one night. That's, yeah. a, that's also a high concept movie. Sure. Like which he doesn't really usually do. It's more like character based, thicker, like more more expansive. Oh yeah, was just 100%. like it's just and it wasn't his script, so like it makes sense. Yeah. I had a quick after you said you were talking about Dune. I had a quick image of. Javier Bardem as Neil McCauley in my head, like as like a younger one. But he's too he's too Mexican. He's old now too. And I don't mean that in like a racist way, but yeah. like there's a whole the the whole point of like the Neil in Mexico sequence is this gringo who's in Mexico with like this Mexican woman and her daughter, and mm. like he's a, an obvious outsider, and like that doesn't really work with Bardem as like yeah. a Spanish man. Like he would just he would blend in too easily. But man. 
it would, it's a fun what if in your head in all other reg- aspects of the storytelling. I can't believe we can't crack the Neil thing. Yeah, I wish there. I, I honestly was just like searching actors because it's hard to just like think off the top of my head of like. Well, and I also think there's a dearth of like middle-aged De Niro-esque, like you know, megawatt superstars anymore. It's like, you know, we just fired off Tom Hardy, but even he feels kind of out of place in a weird way. Like, even my braid goes to somebody like Joel Edgerton, and that doesn't fucking work. And no. it's like, hell, it, it, it's such a tough question because it's like De Niro was one of a kind. Pacino was one of a kind. That's why having them in this movie finally show down was like such a big fucking deal is because there weren't actors like that. I, for a second in my head flashed Ruffalo, but I don't think like, um, <laughs> you already had him as scummy cop in collateral. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, he also just like, he's, he's morphed so much into more of this, like Marvel type actor. Like he's this kind of like sweeter, doughier guy. It seems like now, um, I think him younger possibly. Yeah. But, Cause I think, I mean, I think cause he used to be like, you think about him even like as far back as like the last castle, he was like this kind of fuming, like brooding actor, kind of like D'Onofrio esque. And then he went a different direction. Even as much as I love like Ben Affleck, like he's in the age range and could do the grizzle thing and has made his own Michael Mann movie with the town, <laughs> yeah. you know, like he could possibly slip into the Macaulay thing, but he even doesn't 100% work because again, it's like, how do you replace De Niro? It's like, with Isaac, we at least have a one-to-one in a visual sense with Pacino. Like right. You could get a guy who gets in there and looks like him and is, frankly, a good enough actor and has worked with the Schraders of the world and everything. Like He's got big, expressive eyes like Pacino. Yeah. Like he's got he, that look. He can be a movie star. Like We've seen him in fucking Star Wars movies, and we've seen him in The Card Counter. It's like he can carry that, that same electricity that Pacino could, too. Because, I mean, the other thing that we, we haven't even brought up when talking about Pacino in Heat is that Pacino is in that post set of a woman Oscar win roar phase of his acting that we became known for. It's kind of like after uh, Jeff Bridges won for True Grit, every performance of his suddenly became mealy mouth. Like they have a weird, they have a weird analogous kind of career path after they both won because it's like you guys just stuck with the thing that finally got you the golden trophy and the love that you always thought you deserved. And it's like, maybe you were more interesting before that. Now I like the roar Pacino like era. I like scent of a woman. I love heat. Obviously I love, which for me is the, the high camp version of it is devil's advocate. I was going to say that's him. It's like one of the greatest ones where he just goes completely over the top and relishes it. But it's like, that's the other thing is that are you asking like if you cast Oscar Isaac as Vincent Hanna, are you asking him to replicate the same cadence? Because I mean the dialogue's written that way. It's almost impossible to ask somebody to 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 bring their own interpretation of the character because it's like man himself is hamstrung like Vincent Hanna with just being Al Pacino and maybe hamstrung's the wrong word, but it's just like that's who it is. That's who owns this character. Yeah, it's when it's I mean I was even talking to a friend earlier tonight about like the new Indiana Jones movie. It's like, we decided like, would you rather have an Indiana Jones film with a different actor with Spielberg directing or vice versa with, you know, Harrison Ford. And we were saying like, that's one of those characters that like Harrison 
kind of owns, you know? Sure. And it's a different thing because, but Indiana Jones is also this more like iconic character. Like, you know, Vincent and Neil are so based on the actor who played them. You know, it's about like, it is so like intermixed with, like you said, was pitched as these two movie stars leading to that diner scene of them across. Like, I don't think you should even try. I just don't think you should. That's why I think his instinct to do it as a book first was the right one. Because we can possibly play the only one, the only one, and it's like also because the budget on this fucking movie would be astronomical, like a four hundred million dollar movie for real. It's insane. Those set pieces alone would be like, like you even said with the freeway chase. You're like, how do we do this? Like, <laughs> I are we do we just like do we have to rob a bank in order to film this sequence? Yeah, because man. it's insane. Well, Martin, this is it, the end of season three. We made it, sir. Spine number forty is heat. It feels fitting that that's you know, a nice round number comes with one of our, our favorite movies of all time. But this has been wonderful. Everybody out there listening, you, you should go pick up a copy of Heat 2 immediately because it's it's absolutely the best movie that I haven't seen this year but exists 100% in my head. And we have a whole October now coming up for you. But as usual... We can't do it without each other. So, Martin, thank you again. Thank you, sir. We plowed through so many of these at this point <laughs> that it's just, it's almost like breathing for us. But uh, you'll have to tune in next month to see what we got for you in Halloween season at Secret Handshake. See you next time. Bye.